Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are personal finance writer Kate Bealey and our special guest David Liddle, founder of investment uh, advisory service Ipso Facto Investor. Today we're discussing generating an income, and in particular, achieving a sustainable yield. David, in your critique of this week's reader portfolio, you say that investing involves a trade-off, and for income, this currently involves going up the risk scale and opting for equities. Why are equities the best income option at the moment, in your view? Well, Leonora, it's not necessarily the case that equities will always be the best option for income. But our reader here is looking for a 4% yield, and for, for that to grow over time. In current circumstances, with bond yields and cash yields very low, we do have to turn to equities in some way. There are obviously other options, for example, property, the buy-to-let market. But most people will have a significant value in their own personal homes, so that adding to this property exposure may not be such a good idea. There are also obviously corporate bonds. We're not great fans of corporate bonds at the moment. Yields are low, the upside is limited. If packaged in a fund to achieve diversification, charges are often quite high. And obviously there is a risk that interest rates will rise from these levels, meaning values will go down. So in a sense, we are forced back to equities. That is not to say that in an ideal world, we would not have some diversification in the portfolio. But the major exposure is likely to be equities. It is worth noting that over the past 15 years, a period that has seen quite a few economic ups and downs, the dividend return on the FTSE All Share has increased by 78%. Ultimately, if the global economy is growing, companies should be able to increase their profits and hence the distribution of the, those profits as dividends. So are UK equities good value at the moment? Well, this slightly depends on your view of the future direction of the global economy. But just looking at the dividend yield on the FTSE All Share of 3.3% at the moment, that compares with an average of 3.2% over the past 15 years. So just on this basis, UK equities look slightly undervalued, i.e. with a higher yield, yield than average. Relative to other classes, they look quite cheap. Yeah, that sounds pretty compelling, David. Um, Another thing you said about equities was that they protect against inflation. Why do you think that's necessary at the moment? Just turning to history, as I mentioned, the dividend yield on the FTSE All Shares increased by 78% since January 2000. Over that period, inflation in the form of the Retail Prices Index has been 53%. There are a few other asset classes that can deliver these sort of real returns. This makes sense if we, if we remember where inflation comes from. It is generated largely by companies raising the prices of the goods they sell, which in turn may be a response to higher costs, whether from suppliers, raw materials or wages. So on average, companies should be able at least to maintain the real, i.e. inflation-adjusted level of their profits, and hence their dividends. Of course, it may be argued that inflation is not the problem at the moment, with depressed global growth and lower oil and commodity prices, leading many to fear the opposite of inflation, i.e. deflation or falling prices. And this is a real risk. The probability has to be, however, that with the global economy seemingly recovering and governments and central bankers in the developed world going all out to create inflation of close to 2%, that they do succeed in this. I think there is another point here for those approaching retirement that... The cost of care and retirement homes seems to be particularly inflation-prone, whatever else is happening in the economy. 
this reader was very concerned about having quite a high yield, quite a high income. Can you have a very sustainable high yield or do you have to take a very high level of risk for that every time? Well, looking at uh, the sort of equities in this portfolio, um, we have uh, said as advised that it would be sensible to move out of individual equities and into um, some form of uh, pooled investment vehicles, such as investment trusts, but it could be open-ended investment companies as well. We happen to prefer investment trusts for reasons I can talk about. Uh, but um, in terms of the kind of risk we're facing, obviously equities uh, do carry a large amount of volatility. If you, if you uh, look at what's happened to the market since January 2000, Basically, the FTSE All Share fell by 45% to March 2003, then doubled again to June 2007. It then fell by 45% to March 2009. And since that time, it's doubled again. (laughs) So uh, after all that, the market is up 20%. And it's important to note, over that time, the dividend return has steadily increased. So whatever has happened to the capital volatility... Dividends have, in fact, increased and increased at a rate higher than inflation. David, um, you mentioned investment trusts and you also said in your critique that they're excellent vehicles for income investors. Why are investment trusts so good? There are a number of reasons for this. It is partly about being able to take a long-term view with their structure as closed-end funds and the fact that they are companies with boards, supports planning and governments in terms of generating sufficient revenue to pay a particular dividend. It is also still true, but perhaps less true than it used to be, that investment trusts generally have lower costs and charges than other investment vehicles, allowing therefore more of the revenue to be distributed as dividend. Gearing or borrowing, although adding to risk, can enhance both capital and income returns over the longer term. Also, many of the older investment trusts have been able to build up quite significant revenue reserves. Purely as an example, Temple Bar's annual dividend is covered 1.4 times by its revenue reserves, which gives a certain comfort. And I think it's true that even uh, when a company like BP, which was a major payer of dividends in the UK market, cancelled its dividend completely as a result of the oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, most of the investment trusts in the equity income sector manage to at least maintain or increase their dividend. Are investment trusts suitable for all investors? Well, I think that uh, anyone interested in looking at equities should at least consider investment trusts. What about people who don't have a risk appetite to invest in equities? What can they do to generate an income? Well, we've talked about uh, property and corporate bonds Uh, Just one thing perhaps to mention on corporate bonds, there is quite an interesting product and although this won't be suitable for all, perhaps the more experienced investor, which is an ETF investing in corporate bonds but with some of the interest rate risk hedged out, the iShares Sterling Corporate Bond Interest Rate Hedged USITS ETF, to give it its full name, SLXH, it yields 3.5%. This invests in large-cap corporate bonds but attempts to reduce the risk of rising interest rates by selling the 10-year gilt future. I know this sounds complicated, 
but it could be of interest to some as a small part of a portfolio. Obviously, there are banks offering higher rate accounts or cash ISA accounts, which can be trawled through, but generally the rates won't be very high and or there will be restrictions either as to the amount or period. David, under what circumstances is it acceptable for um, inv- or suitable, let's say, for an investor, an income investor to hold cash, even if it's not making a high return? Well, I think now may be an acceptable time to hold cash, uh, even though it isn't earning a high return, but only as a proportion of a portfolio. We believe all portfolios ought to have some diversification, ideally assets that don't react in the same way. So in a predominantly equity portfolio, you might also hold gilts and cash. But as regards these latter two, at ipso facto, we are actually moving towards preferring cash than gilts because of the risks posed by bonds offering very low yields. Just to give you an example of that, a uh, a 10-year gilt, take the... uh, 5% 5% 2025, which currently has a price of 131. Uh, if you buy that now and uh, want to sell it in five years' time, and interest rates have gone up to say 3.5%, that's not an impossible scenario, you'll have lost nearly 20% of your capital value. So we think cash is a reasonable asset to hold at the moment. Broadly speaking, other than things staying much as they are. There are two scenarios that can play out, although this is probably a big generalisation. The global economy can continue to recover and indeed pick up speed, which, once they have got over temper tantrums at interest rate rises, should be good for equities but bad for bonds. Or we can get a slowdown in the economy and deflation, which will be bad for equities but good for bonds, or at least developed government bonds. So holding cash to take advantage when one or other asset price falls may be no bad thing. And just finally, in, in what cases do you think an annuity is the best idea for just a kind of predictable income? Well, I think anyone who is worried about income in retirement should consider an annuity. Clearly, the problem with annuity at the moment is that with interest rates so low, they don't look particularly good value. Also, you're obviously saying goodbye to your capital value when you buy an annuity. But as you get older, uh, you should see that the kind of deals you're offered improve. So I think generally, as you progress through retirement, you should look at annuity as part of a portfolio of retirement assets. David, thank you for all your suggestions on this. In this week's issue, we've also looked at currency hedging as monetary easing in Japan, the US and now the Eurozone has in some cases led to weakening. As a result, a number of asset managers have added currency hedge share classes to their funds, so Kate Bealey has been looking at whether it is worth buying one of these. Kate, why should investors consider buying a fund's hedge share class? Well, hedge share classes are useful if you're invested somewhere with quite a rapidly weakening currency and then you know that when you translate that back to sterling you're going to lose out on some returns. A bit like when you go to the post office to convert your money back after being abroad and you get a lot less than you would like. It's kind of that idea. Um, So recently the strongest case has been in Japan following the election of um, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and his kind of Abenomics program, a uh, massive monetary stimulus program, was kind of aimed at you know boosting the economy and also at deliberately weakening the yen to make exports more appealing. So the difference in returns between hedged and unhedged share classes in Japan has been enormous over the past, well, between 2012 and 14, really. In some cases, kind of 50% difference. That's quite a big differential there. Yeah, it's a big differential. I mean, you would be annoyed if you had been in in the wrong one in 2013 in particular. 
And then this debate's come up again recently in Europe because of QE and very rapid weakening of the euro at the beginning of this year. Um, I think it was January that weakens the lowest point against sterling since 2007. So again, people are asking if that is a strong case for going for a hedge share class in Europe now. So what have people been saying to you? Should you go for it then with Europe? Should you still go for it with Japan? Well, there's a couple of things to say, really. The first is hedging is absolutely not a way to try and play currency markets. This is about protecting yourself and your returns. It's not about trying to make a short-term bet. Um, Currency markets are notoriously difficult to predict, and even fund managers don't want to do it. So, you know, probably neither should you. So the thing is, for this purpose, you need to be looking at a long-term trend, which you're quite sure about. And that's why Japan has been such an ideal one, because the government has deliberately tried to weaken the currency. So, you know, you've got a while for that to play out, and it's a reasonably safe bet. The thing is, are all those gains over now in Japan? This year to date, things have really turned around. Those hedge share classes have actually underperformed um, the unhedged ones, so things have kind of flipped. If you do get it wrong, you are in a sense paying twice because you do have to pay extra for hedge share classes and then you have the opportunity cost of maybe missing out on returns if you've gone for the other. Um, So there, there are those things to think about. On the other hand, Many people do expect the end to weaken again um, and government policy is still the same. So it might it might be worth going for it and just trying to neutralise the risk. Europe is a bit trickier. Um, people are divided as to what will happen with the euro. Um, again, it could be worth just neutralising that currency risk if you're prepared to maybe miss out on some returns if the opposite to what you expect happens and the euro does not weaken. Um, and I think the thing is that if you're invested in a long enough horizon then currency these kind of fluctuations will play out and a lot of people would say you might as well not try and play this game if you're invested for a kind of 10-year time frame because you just don't know what will happen so I think that the lesson is if, if you think there's a really strong trend if you think um, a currency is definitely going to weaken and could be for some time then go for it Japan and Europe being the strongest cases. Now, asset managers have recently been adding currency share classes, so I'm assuming it hasn't been that common. If you actually want to buy a currency hedge share class, how easy is it to do it? Do many funds offer that option? Well, yeah, that, that's an issue. Um, there aren't that many around in terms of European funds currently, quite a lot in Japan, um, and those ones have obviously done well, as I said. The interesting thing will be whether active managers choose to launch these um, in Europe. From what I hear, a lot of thinking about it because there is a lot of demand. But there is an issue for active managers of, you know, spending all the money and, and going to all the time of setting up a new share class if people will then just all kind of get out of it in a year's time. Um, currency being, you know, tending to be a more short term play. So there are there are far more in terms of passives, uh, so far more ETFs in this area than there are active, but certainly are some active funds and definitely some ones that have done very well. And we do talk about that in the magazine. Great. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you want some currency hedged funds or ETFs, then, um, yeah, check out the this week's magazine. Uh, Kate, you've also been looking at charges on SIPs and ISAs in the Your Money section of Investors Chronicle. Um, now, I think people think they know what they're paying for these. 
but you were saying that in addition to headline fees, there are actually a number of less obvious costs that you need to be aware of. Kate, can you tell us what some of these hidden costs are? Sure. Well, whichever way you invest, you're going to face kind of a big raft of of charges and some might be obvious, some might be less obvious. So some you may have heard of or may not are things like setup charges. Again, not all investment accounts, you know, have these, but some do and some of them can be pretty large and that means that you're going to be paying some kind of annual fee and then you have to pay this upfront cost too. Other things include um, cuts on FX transactions, so a charge for converting your currency back to your to sterling or whatever mm, your something you might is. have not thought of yeah. you might not think yeah. that that happens and that tends to be in the small print so you know have you noticed that to so read the small print right exactly <laughs> and just another example um inactivity fees these are less common now but but some brokers platforms do charge them so it's worth having a look because most people don't want to be frequently trading and definitely don't want to be punished for for not so it's just mm. something to think about Yeah, well, thank you for that. And uh, thank you very much to our special guest, David Little, founder of online investment advisory service Ipso Facto. You can read more about investing for sustainable income, currency hedging and hidden charges in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.